0: Good morning, Elevate. How are we all? Good, Good, fantastic. Great to see you all here. A few new faces as well. A special welcome to our first-time guests. Um, Have we made it known, Scott and Evie, that you guys are engaged to be married? By the way, if you didn't already know, Scott and Evie are engaged to be married. And uh, people after my own heart, they have opted for a short engagement. See, I'm one of those things. As soon as you made your mind up, set the date, get it done get on with it. Okay. So proud of you guys. It'll be a nice summer's wedding. Friends of ours organized their wedding. Sorry, friends of friends organized a wedding yesterday uh, to be held outdoors on the lovely white sands of Cottesloe Beach. And suffice to say, they had to move. So anyway, they still got married. Relaxed. Hey, um, a few weeks ago, we launched a brand new conversation called Blessed. Very, very simple. Blessed. And, uh, We teed off with the idea, reminding us and stirring up the idea that God did not create us to do life together alone. His idea for church is not this... For us to be lined up in rows alongside strangers looking at the back of somebody's head. His idea for the church was to do life in deep, spirited relationships. To have the sort of relationships with people who have refrigerator rights. If they're in your home, they go straight to your fridge. They help themselves to anything they want. You wouldn't think it weird because they have refrigerator rights. That's God's picture for his community, his church. And you can catch up with that on our uh, podcast from three weeks ago. Then... Uh, Last week, we talked about this idea that we are blessed with the opportunity to share the story of Jesus. Yes, it's a responsibility, but it's not a responsibility that's meant to weigh us down. It's a responsibility that we're meant to view through the eyes of opportunity, of privilege, of all the things, of all of the people that God could have chosen to perpetuate his message of salvation. He chose us. He conscripted us. He employed us and he sent us. It's a great, great, great blessing. This week I want to shift gears. I want to talk about money. This week it's probably the one that actually, when people think about blessing, uh, kind of default to thinking about money. We've been very intentional with this conversation to make sure we don't just get one-dimensional with the idea of blessing. To think blessing is only about money, but then at the same time we can't ignore the fact that one of the ways God blesses us is that He blesses us with resources. He blesses us financially. Interestingly, though, if you were to ask People, generally speaking, if you were to ask people how much more money would it take for you to be happy, in my experience, often the answer is the same. It's uh, a little bit more. How, how much more money would you need in order to be happy? A little bit more. They, they don't even necessarily, you know, have the ability to put a number on it, but just this idea of, of a little bit more. And. Largely, the reason for this is that we like to supersize things. We, we, we get a version of something and uh, we want to supersize it. The, 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 the line is always trending upwards. I remember my first job, my first full-time job out of university, paid $20,000 per annum. Gross, not net. Before the tax man got anything, $20,000. I was earning $20,000 if you'd asked me, When I was earning $20,000 a year, how much more money I would need to be happy, I guarantee you, I would have said to you, yeah, a little bit more. Well, my next job paid $33,000 per annum. So, all of a sudden, I was blessed with a little bit more. But if you'd asked me, when I was earning $33,000 per annum, how much more money I would have needed to be happy, guaranteed I would have said to you, yeah, a little bit more. Well, my third full-time job paid $38,000 per annum, 5000 more than my second, 18000 more than my first. Pretty sure if you'd asked me back then, Mark, how much more money would it take right now for you to be happy? I'm pretty confident I would have said a little bit more. Because we like to supersize things. We, 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 the, the line is always moving upwards. And one of the reasons the line is always moving upwards is we have blurred the distinction between a need and a want. It's not a new phenomenon. In fact, this week I was came across a, a book written in 1922 by a gentleman named William Uchers. It's called All About Coffee. It's an 800-page compendium, All About Coffee, written in 1922. And in 1922, even William Uchers Blurred the line, I think, between a need and a want When he said this in his tome He said, coffee is universal in its appeal All nations do it homage It has been recognized as a human necessity It is no longer a luxury or an indulgence Now, look, I love a good cup of joe, okay? I'm the first to be admitting that But but even I think that William Euchre's here maybe, just maybe, blurred the line between a need and a want. Back in uh, first year university, I took Psychology 101. And uh, one of the things that they teach you in Psychology 101 is M- Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This idea that, that, that we have uh, a set of needs as humans... And he makes the point that at the most basic are our physiological needs, or they're often just referred to as our survival needs. And, and if we were to boil down what our survival needs are, according to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, on, on the bottom, at this most basic level, what we really need just to survive. Now, I'm not talking about to thrive. I'm just talking about to survive. He makes the point that we just need food, water, shelter, and warmth If you say what's a need At the most basic level Our needs are food, water Shelter And warmth But even with those things Particularly in western society we blur blurred the line between What's a need and a want we, We've blurred the line between How much is enough Take food for example How much food is enough I want you to play a little guessing game here with me right now. I don't want to yell it out or just but just think to yourself, answer this question in your mind. How many dollars, so what 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 dollar value do Australians throw away of of food, household food per annum? How much in dollar dollar terms do you think collectively we Australians throw away in terms of household food, edible household food. I don't mean chicken bones. I mean stuff, The actual ed- how much per annum? Just think of a number. It's not a, it's not a prize if you get it right, but, but just think of it. The, the number, the, the, this doesn't include supermarkets who, who throw away produce that they weren't able to sell or restaurants who, who throw away produce they weren't able to, to sell to customers. Just household food, edible household food. The figure... Per annum in Australia is $8 billion. Does that sound like a lot of money to anybody? Does that actually sound almost criminal to anybody? Now, now, if, if that figure, you're kind of like, well, I don't know if that's a lot. Well, it is, it is a lot. Okay, if, I, if someone offered to give you $8 billion tomorrow, you'll suddenly discover it's a lot of money. Uh, But let me put it in context. That figure, $8 billion, is double the Australian government's annual foreign aid giving. Our government gives $4 billion away every year to foreign aid to help developing countries. We, its citizens, collectively throw away twice that amount of food. We've even managed to blur the lines between a need and a want, even when it comes to just our basic needs. I posted a post yesterday, which I ripped from a a company I'm going to tell you a bit more about next week called Sevenly. And they simply said this, there's enough on this planet for everyone's need, but not everyone's greed. And I, I I got really... I started going pretty deep down this rabbit hole myself in, in March. I went to a conference in the States and uh, came across a, a book written by a guy named Jeff Shinobar. If we put that up, Sam. The book's called More or Less. This is the author, Jeff Shinobar. He's an Atlanta local, relatively young guy. Subtitle of the book is Choosing a Life of Excessive Generosity. But actually, the premise of the book comes out of the idea that, that most of us in Western society, we live above the line. And yet most people in developing countries around the world live below the line. We live in the black, they live in the red. They don't get the privilege of, of distinguishing between a need and a want. Their everyday is consumed with just trying to find the basic needs, food, water, shelter. And um, Jeff Shinnebarger uh, and his wife, um, he tells a, a story, they, they, they started almost by accident they started conducting what they called enough experiments putting themselves in this kind of everyday lab situation where they were testing themselves to find out or to or to recalibrate with how much is enough one christmas he and his wife their, their their love language is gift giving so they go a little bit ott when it comes to christmas time and gift giving and they found the credit card statement in the mail in January, post-Christmas a few years ago, and it was a figure that had a lot of zeros on the end before the decimal point. And it totally, totally blew them away. Oh my gosh, how on earth did we spend that much on Christmas gifts? Now, they weren't Christmas gifts. They weren't on these you know, wild indulgences, but they spent beyond what they could afford. So they decided you know, they're going to have to curtail expenditure until they paid off this credit card debt. And they started to really massage things down and trim here and trim there. And even when they'd kind of cut the bones out of everything, they were still left in a position where they couldn't afford to pay this credit card back. So they decided to conduct an enough experiment. They decided to see how many days they could go without buying any more food. They decided to not buy any more food, to use every last morsel of what existed in their kitchen at that time, in the freezer, in the fridge, in the pantry, until it literally got to the end. And, 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 uh, and to see just how, because, you know, we do that, us blokes especially, go to the fridge, open it up, ah oh, there's nothing to eat, you know. I, I'm sorry, mate. You know, in a developing country, they would think that this is the smorgasbord of the local sizzler when they come to our houses, most of them. And so they conducted this enough experiment. Let me give you a little bit of a, uh, a look behind the curtain as Jeff records it in his book. We started with uh, the meats in the freezers. And then mixed them with a bag of rice and steamed veggies. This is doable, we thought. And after three days, however, we ran out of vegetables and fruit. So we started digging deeper. We had three boxes of corn muffins we worked through with some chili. Deeper, we found some freezer-burned Lean Cuisine dinners in the bottom of the freezer. We dug a bit deeper. We found two boxes of brownies in the cake mix, and they were a highlight for me. We got to the bottom of the freezer and found a package of six frozen, unbaked loaves of bread. Score! We baked all of them. One loaf would last a few days, and then we put another in the oven. We ran out of butter for the bread, and so we eventually worked through all of our olive oil. We ate canned soup, and then we ate more canned soup. Spaghetti, noodles with no sauce, the last box of macaroni and cheese, canned tuna. At some point in the process, I realized... I'd not even actually ever seen the back of my pantry before. We found some small bottles of apple juice, more canned soup, Jello, ramen noodles—they never go bad, right? And we found 20 little packets of Kool-Aid, and then later we made pancakes three times. We actually committed up front to going a month without grocery shopping. Shopping in the end of our enough experiment, we lasted seven weeks. How much is enough? Jeff Shinnebarga goes on and he he actually documents uh, a number of other enough experiments. It's a very, very, very profound book. I read a lot of books and this has been one of the standouts for me this year. He talks about another enough experiment of a, a girl he met, a girl named Ashley. Ashley's a Chicago resident and Ashley was on the bus one day to work and she was looking out and she was seeing a lot of the same faces that she saw every day on her way to work on the streets of Chicago, and she was noticing people wearing ill-fitting clothes, shoes that were too big. She started to notice that, that people, some of the people she saw were wearing the same clothes day after day. And uh, it occurred to her that uh, maybe she'd been blessed because she got to change her clothes from one day to the next. She even got to change her clothes when she went to the gym. She got to change her clothes when she got home from the gym. She decided to conduct in enough experiment. Her commitment was to only wear one outfit per day to go through her entire wardrobe and never wear the same outfit again. So once she'd worn an outfit for a day, she had to put that in the worn pile. And she decided she was gonna see how many days she could last without buying any more new clothes, but without throwing any out, by just wearing one outfit a day putting it in the warm policy see how many days she could last. Let me have Ashley tell her story for you.
1: It was wintertime in Chicago, and I was on my way to work. I was in a neighborhood where it was a low-income neighborhood. And i have been there for several months, but it just hit me that morning. As I, as I looked at my neighbors and some of the kids on the street... Um, I was thinking about their clothes and realizing that some of the clothes that they were wearing were some of the same clothes that they were wearing the day before. So it just started getting the wheels turning for me about what clothes mean to different people and how it impacts me as a person and and maybe how it impacts other people differently. I'll carefully adjust the aperture once more until I say. it This idea came to wear everything that I have and wear it only once and then put it in the warm pile and then go on to the next and just see how long I can go to really ask myself, how much do I have? I can choose to wear clothes that are um, for going out, casual clothes, but not quite, you know, go out in public clothes, nighttime clothes, exercise clothes, clothes that are tucked away. For that special occasion, and within all those categories, I had clothes that I really liked, and then I had clothes that I didn't really like, but I still held on to just in case. And I wrote down in my journal, and I just let's let's go for it. How long can I go? It took me, uh, to be specific, 156 days. So uh, there was this one dress that I I had for a wedding. Um, floor length gown sleeveless like very fancy and um, I kind of kept going back and forth about whether I would wear it. About midway through the experiment I thought you know what if I get through this, if I get through every piece of clothing I'm gonna go big and I'm gonna wear that dress regardless of where I'm at and it just so happened I had to wear it to work. It was interesting wearing that dress for a day out in public I had to get gas wearing a formal dress at, you know, in the morning, but I was able to talk to some friends into doing this little formal party with me, and it was really fun to celebrate the fact that the experiment was over. To be able to get through 156 days in shirts alone was eye-opening. It really helped me to see that even though I am somebody who thinks that I live simply, don't live as simply as I thought. It really caused me to step back and really evaluate why do I have this clothes. When I am approached with, you know, giving a donation of clothes, you know, if there's a shelter that's in need. I try to choose clothes that I actually really like and give from a place of I'm not that attached to my clothes. I don't really need this and it doesn't, you know, it's it's not my identity. We
0: are not our clothes. And Ashley talks about a very simple concept. Live simply so that others can simply live. Question, I want 100% participation in this if this applies to you. How many know that you will eat food tomorrow? Keep your hand up. Put your other hand up if you will also wear... Some item of clothing different to that which you're wearing today. Okay, all of those with either one or both hands up. Let me tell you something you might not already be aware of. You are rich. You are rich. In fact, not only are you rich, I could even help you find out exactly how rich you are. I encourage you to go this afternoon to globalrichlist.com. That's the URL. Go to globalrichlist.com and you can plug in, in the blank field here, your annual income. Okay, now let's just suppose your annual income is $65,000 Australian. Now, some of you may earn less than that. I know some of you earn more than that. I'm just going to say, for example, if you earn gross, before tax, $65,000, so we put in $65,000 into uh, the little blank field there, You'll see the result. Let's scroll ahead there, Sam. Put in $65,000. Let's go to the next one. If you earn $65,000 per year, that's you in the top left corner. There's no category richer than you. You are in the top 0.44% of the richest people in the world. And then, by the way, I did this on Thursday. As of Thursday, if you earn $65,000 per annum, you are, at this moment in history, the 29 millionth 127,000th, 142nd richest person on the planet. That's pretty good. Guys, we're rich. Now, here's the thing. What I want to drill down this morning with the time we have left is to help us get a clearer handle on why. Because There's three perspectives. I've been... Walking this planet for nearly 45 years, I've been a professional Christian for nearly 20 years, there's three prevailing mindsets that I've observed when it comes to financial blessing. The first mindset I've seen a lot of is pride. People who will tell you that everything I've got is because I've worked hard for it and it's mine. And the outcome of that thinking is that I'm going to make the decisions about what I do with my money that I've worked hard on for that belongs to me it's pride there's a mindset i think sits pretty f- at the uh, pretty much at the far end at the at the alternate end of that continuum and it's a poverty man- mindset that somehow to have nothing is to be blessed and it's a little bit weird to me because if people who have nothing are already blessed why does god call us to give to them because if we give to people who are poor, but they're blessed, we're stealing their blessing from them. We're causing them to be less blessed. No, it's ridiculous. So the outcome of people who have a poverty men- mentality is to say, I'm not interested in having any resources. Well, if you've got no resources, you can't do anything for someone else. Even if you only have enough for yourself, you can't operate out of overflow. There's a biblical perspective that I call Gratitude. Gratitude is a perspective that we acknowledge that everything is God's, that he's blessed me with everything I have, that everything I have, I'm not the owner of it. I'm just the manager. But because I'm the manager, the outcome is that I will operate viewing his resources that he's entrusted me with some of. I will operate managing them according to his instructions. I will do what he wants me to do with that. It's important to understand we don't have to apologize for being blessed. When you travel to a developing country, you don't have to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm from Australia. I've got running water. We, have to apologize. We, we, we simply have to get a deep, deep understanding of why, why it is we're blessed And I encapsulate it in a very simple perspective. It's not an original saying, but a very simple perspective. Guys, we are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Jesus, in fact, said it this way. It's more blessed to give than to receive. How many have heard that said before? It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not just something your grandma says. It's actually something that Jesus Said It's something Jesus taught us. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But let me ask a question, and I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody here, but I want you to think about yourself. I want us to really, this morning, open ourselves up to possibly being challenged and possibly, even hopefully, being recalibrated, leaving here with a different perspective than one that we walked in with. Let me ask you, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. Don't have to put your hand up, but just ask yourself, do you really believe that? Do you really, at the core of who you are, believe it's more blessed to give than to receive? Well, here's a couple of tests. At Christmas time, are you more excited about getting presents or giving presents? Are you more excited about your salary hitting your bank account than you are about the buckets going past? Do you really believe it's more blessed to give than to receive? Would you say that you are more excited if someone walked up to you and said, Hey, God told me to give you a hundred bucks. than for you to out in the middle of your week, find somebody that God puts across your path that needs a hundred bucks. Which one would you be more excited about? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Do we really believe it? Because actually where we stand on the answer to that question, do I really believe it, is actually a sign of our maturity. Those of you with kids, you know this. Kids at Christmas time are not queuing up to give gifts. They're queuing up to get gifts, rip the paper off them, and get busy with them. In fact, even one of the challenges is, after you 've given them the gifts and uh, their cousins come over to play you 've now even got the challenge of of making them share the gift but, but look that 's okay they're kids that 's their job description they 're being kids. But if those same kids when they 're twenty five years old, are operating with the same perspective on gifts, the same perspective. When it comes to giving and receiving, you would say, you haven't, you'd say, Junior, you haven't matured in this. And that's a question for us to answer as well. Do we really, really believe it's more blessed to give than to receive? Here at Elevate, we have five essentials. Five essentials that we beat the drum regularly on, and one of them is giving. Giving. We beat the drum on this unapologetically. We beat the drum on this consistently. We beat the drum on this, and I'll tell you why. We beat the drum on this because we have declared war on materialism. We have declared war on materialism, and we get you for less than an hour a week and not 52 weeks a year, and all the rest of the time when you're watching television, you're being told that the line between a need and a want is very, very blurry. And we're being told that stuff that it really wants are actually needs. And we've declared war on that. It's not that they're evil, but it's that we need to be grounded, grounded in a biblical perspective on finances. We need to understand what is true north and navigate in that direction when it comes to our finances. We need to steward or manage God's resources in the way that he would have them. And we've just made it real simple. We don't have 25 things. We've got three. We talk about giving our first 10%, which, by the way, is not actually giving. It's actually just returning to God and and honor him first. It's a a principle you can see right back from early days of creation. God, it was called the first fruits. It's this idea that God blesses us with 100% of our resources, and he says, I want you to bring back to me, to return to me the first 10%. And by doing that, you're honoring me. You're showing me that you understand that it's mine. You're showing me that you want to honor me and put me first. This idea of the first 10%, it's not designed to trip us up. God's not asking us to do it because he wants something from us, he owns it all already. He's doing it because he wants something for us. He wants to see our hearts continue to be open. He wants to see our hearts to continue to be enlarged. He wants to make a difference through his church to see his kingdom grow. He wants something not from us, but for us. This idea of us consistently bringing our first 10%. But then he doesn't rip the handbrake on either. And and we've picked up on this idea that the first 10% is is a goal. It's, It's a goal. In other words, if you're not there yet, you know, if maybe you're at zero, well, well, maybe today's the time to start giving 1%, 2%, and make 10% a goal. If, it's, if you're at eight, make 10% a goal. If you're at nine, make 10% a goal. But don't just make it a goal. Make it a goal and a minimum. There's no reason to rip the handbrake on at 10%. If you're someone whose faith and obedience and sacrifice and generosity has seen you to actually ramp up your giving to where it gets to 10%, why not then just keep on pushing? And in time... Go for 11%. Go for 12%. But here's what we do. We look at the Bible and we see patterns and we teach those patterns. Okay, We don't teach Mark's ideas, Elevate Leadership's ideas. We teach the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is beyond our four walls. Beyond God calling us to resource his local church well, the stuff that he wants us to do. We have a thing called Elevate Global. Elevate Global is us looking around and recognizing that globally speaking, we are are obscenely rich and that we're not meant to feel guilty about that, but there's a responsibility that comes with that. There's something we're meant to be doing with those financial resources. And so we've identified a couple of things that we give to. I don't have time this morning to go into them in great detail. If you don't know about them yet, Elevate Global, you can go to our front desk and pick up a brochure, have a read of that and let God just break your heart for what he wants you to do with the, the, the financial resources that he's blessed you with. And then we have the thing that Pete talked about just before, building the future where we are creating physical spaces that are warm and engaging places for guests. Regardless of what your grandmother told you, people do judge a book by its cover. You do and so do I. We do it with restaurants, we do it with retail stores, we do it with websites, we do it with everything and uh, unchurched people do it with physical spaces. And if this is, you know, if this is run down, and by the way, we're not trying to turn this into the, the Bellagio, you know, walk down the Vegas Strip and, you know, let's give a thousand billion dollars so we can have big fountains and dancing girls out the front on a Sunday morning. We're, we're, we're talking about creating a place that honors God and that says to unchurched people, we actually take God seriously and we've got a message that we think is going to change your life and don't misjudge us because we've represented God poorly in this Guys we're blessed To be a blessing I would strongly encourage you to get this book It's an incredible reminder There's plenty of other people that Conducted enough experiments in there Those of you that have ever travelled overseas To developing countries you, you You are automatically Reminded that we're very blessed it's one of the problems of being in the most isolated capital city in the world is we live in a goldfish bowl and this goldfish bowl is our reality. And we forget that it's a pretty flippin' good bloody goldfish bowl. And uh, so we're gonna keep pushing as a church. We're not about to pass the buckets a second time just now, by the way. You can all keep your wallets wherever they are for now. You see our giving envelopes. We make a very bold declaration there. We are Elevate Church. We are extravagantly generous. We want to lead the way in this. We want to say, we want God to have said of us, Elevate Church, I'm really proud of you guys. You're using the resources I've blessed you with that belong to me. You're using them in the way that I've asked you to use them. Well done. It'd be a pretty good commendation, wouldn't it? This is actually measurable, by the way. But I can't measure it for you. We have to measure this with God based on how he's called us to steward his finances. You know, one more thing just as we finish, I want to do is some of you, some of you are the reason, well, all of you are the reason we give, but some of you especially, you're right at the front of the queue. The reason we give, the reason we want to see God's church well resourced. And that's because as Pete said earlier, We have a message that we believe is going to change your life. We believe is the most important message you'll ever hear. We believe it's the most important message that could ever be told, that has ever been told. It's the message. And By the way, it's kind of weird. Us church people, we're a little bit strange sometimes. We sang a song earlier, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Guarantee, go to work tomorrow. Tell that to someone in the cubicle next to you. They won't have the foggiest clue what you're talking about. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. What, did you go farming this weekend? (laughs) What does that even mean? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Let me tell you. Theology 101. I'll give you the cliff notes. It's a simple idea that God is holy. Perfect. That we're not. We're screw ups. And we do screw up. We're not holy. And that an unholy person can never be in the presence of a holy God. It'll just destroy us. But God wanted our presence. God wanted a relationship with us. And he knew that we couldn't do it in our strength. No amount of washing, no amount of trying to do good, trying to be better is ever going to get us to the standard that's going to allow us to be in God's presence. So he moved first and he sent 2,000 years ago his son Jesus to this earth. And the metaphor that was used of Jesus was that of a lamb. Okay? Hence the song. Next time you sing it, uh-huh. It's not a farming song. He was referred to as a lamb. It's this idea that, that there needed to be a sacrifice and I'm really, I'm just giving you the cliff notes. There needed to be something in between, between us and God that actually bridged The gap. We couldn't do it ourselves. God moved first. He sent his son, Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was hung on a cross, died a cruel death. And it's said that in that moment, he took our sins upon him. That some divine transference took place. And that what we couldn't do in our own strength, he did for us. He took our sins and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He stood in the gap and he bridged that gap. And because of what Jesus did... Those people who put their faith in Jesus, those people who say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want your forgiveness. I want your gift of relationship with God can get it as a free gift, a free gift. And this morning, that free gift is on offer to every single one of you who've never actually taken that gift, who've never actually said, you know what? I want to have that relationship with God. I want to have... A relationship with God. You can't do it in your own strength, but the good news is you don't need to. You need to take that free gift. Free gift. No strings attached. You don't actually have to take a run up to it. It's there right now, right before you. You just need to grab it. A free gift. And you say, Jesus, I, I, I need your forgiveness. Because I know I'm a screw-up. I know I've done things that fall short of God's standard. I need your forgiveness. And I want to follow you from that place, that place of restoration, that place of having a relationship with God. And for those of you that need to make that decision this morning, in a moment, I just want you to put your hand up. You put your hand up and you say, that's that's me. I need that relationship this morning. I need that forgiveness this morning. I need that free gift this morning. When I see a hand, you can put it down and then we're going to pray. So real quickly, the last thing we're doing this morning and the most important thing we're doing this morning, for those of you that have never taken that gift, right now, right now, just slip your hand up. You say, yeah, I need, I need your forgiveness this morning, Jesus. When I see your hand, great, you can put it down. Who else? Great, you can put it down. Who else? Just quickly slip your hand up. Make sure I see it. And then you can put it down. And then we're going to pray for you. Just, we're all going to pray. You're not going to do anything kooky. Great. I want us to all pray a prayer. This is actually a prayer. It's, it's, a, it's a very meaningful prayer, but it's also a prayer of celebration. Jesus didn't came, didn't come to make bad people good. He comes, he came so that dead people will be restored to life. And that's what's happened here this morning for two people. Being restored from death to life. Flipping neat trick. So let's all pray this prayer, especially those two people that lift their hands. Let's pray this prayer. Repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, forgive me today of everything that I've done that's been short of your standard. Wash me clean. Give me a brand new start. I thank you for dying in my place. I thank you for making it possible to be in relationship with God. From this day forward, I commit to make you my Lord for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And church? Really solid. Well done. Hey, for those two people that put your hand up, if you want us to connect with you and help you kind of navigate the next steps, just put. Uh, the next step card that's next to you, just fill that out. Put, you know, I've decided to follow Jesus. There's a box there you can actually tick, hand it into our front desk, and one of our team will follow you up and just help you take some next steps there. Guys, for the rest of us, that's brilliant. That, above any of the, any of the other reasons I gave you this morning, that is why we give yeah. to see dead people raised to life. Brilliant. Well done, guys. Fantastic. Listen. I kind of think that next week, the message uh, that, that I'm going to speak on, I kind of think that, that, that it's today's message part two. It's technically not, but God's just been really, really kind of drilling some stuff into my heart over the last maybe six months. A couple of the guys in, in uh, our Elevate group have been hearing me talk a little bit about that. And next week, I'm going to kind of unveil that and uh, you need to be here. And I'm not like you need to be here because we want our graphs to go up in terms of bums on seats. No, you need to be here because I believe God has got something that's going to stir each and every one of us to get greater clarity on just why we're here. And I don't just mean why we're here, the cosmic question. I mean you personally, your purpose, your destiny, a part of your calling and my calling. So be here nine twenty-nine. AIS. I can tell you offline what that means later on. Nine twenty-nine, and uh, and let's continue to allow God to transform us, huh? All right. This morning we've got a lot of first-time guests, so those of you that are regulars, make sure you look out for them. The coffee is Colombian and some fancy name that I can't pronounce. And remember, it's a need, not a want. So make sure you have some coffee. Let this message drill down in your heart this week and then come back. Be sure to be here next week for more of that. Fantastic.